Welcome to Legville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Legville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love, and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Legville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I have the great honor of talking with sociologist, doctor, all-around kind of polymath, interesting guy, Nicholas Christakis, about his new book, Blueprint. Uh, For those of you who are listening to this who are my students, you're, of course, reading Blueprint because I've assigned it to all of my students, and I've been recommending it to everybody I know. Welcome onto the podcast. Nicholas, thank thank you so much for having me, John. Yeah, I and I apologize. I apologize to your students who, <laughs> <laughs> who now are reading this 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 book. I hope they're enjoying it. Yeah, well, it's a it's a very it's a very big, ambitious book, um, and it, it sort of ranges all over the place. But I, where I actually told them to start with the book is at the end, and to read mm. the end first because I think the key to understanding what the book is all about, and you can tell me if you, if you agree with this, is this, you know, a couple of paragraphs you have uh, right at the end where you describe your book as a sociodicy. Yes. Right? Um, well, anyway, I, I'm probably getting like way too much ahead. Maybe for those people who've been living under a rock and they don't know who you are, maybe you could just tell our listeners who you are. Well, actually, I mean, I'm a physician and a social scientist, and I head the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, and uh, my laboratory engages in research at the intersection of the natural and the social sciences. We we do everything from study the the genetics of friendship to social robotics to the microbiome to public health trials, trying to improve behavior in developing world settings. Can we artificially create tipping points so that whole groups of people change their attitudes towards towards vaccination or or breastfeeding or or other sorts of public health interventions. But I actually wanted to go back to your use of the word sociodicy because I'm worried some people will think you're talking about the Odyssey as in <laughs> as in as in Odysseus's uh especially given my Greek heritage, given Odysseus's uh, you know journey. But actually that that word sociodicy um you know, S-O-C-I-O-D-I-C-Y is a word that um, sort of mimics the word theodicy, which is the sort of the, you know, is a branch of theology which concerns itself with how can we understand 
this uh, you know a, a notion of uh, the origins of justice in theology, which is how can we understand the fact that there's so much suffering and evil in the world if in fact we imagine that there's omnipotent an omnipotent, omniscient, and benevolent God. I mean, and the theologians have been wrestling with this problem for a very long time, and this is taken as a branch of, of theology known as theodicy, uh, comes from the Greek word theki, which means justice, and of course theo, which means God. So, um, so, but what I'm interested in is what I call a sociodicy, which is how can we understand the goodness of social life despite all the manifest badness, d- despite the fact that that you know, we humans are prone to such awful things. We are we are prone to 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 violence and to selfishness and to and to mendacity and to tribalism and to and to murder um, and hatred. And 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 how can we understand that? Um, is my question. And you know, I think that 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 too many scientists and and to too large an extent, the person on the street has been overly focused on our propensity for these awful things and our our evolved capacity for these awful things. And and the bright side has been denied the attention it deserves, because equally we we have the capacity for love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and all these wonderful qualities which have not gotten the attention they deserve, nor has the evolution of those qualities gotten the attention it deserves. And I believe that these these wonderful good qualities must necessarily have outweighed the bad ones. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise because otherwise we would have evolved to be solitary animals. If if every time I came near you you filled me with lies or were mean to me or killed me, I'd be better off living as an isolated individual. But of yeah. course that's not what happens. So yeah. anyway, so 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 providing an account for having confidence in the goodness of society, despite the badness, is sort of what I'm after. Yeah. Well, I I see the obvious parallel to your book, um, although they they argue very very different things. Would be Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Emile, right? Because yeah. uh, there also you have uh, a point in what we have come to call the Enlightenment, where there's a very polarized time, and you have people who are on the sort of on the the religious side saying you know, a bunch of things, and then people on the other side saying these other things. And he, he comes along and sort of finds this really, really interesting synthesis that allows both of those things. So it's very often referred to as, I mean, Susan Nyman, uh, the philosopher, refers to Emile as a theodicy. And I, I think yours, in these very polarized times, your book serve, serves a similar function because it, I mean, if, if you're really political, if, if you're a, in a team sport way, uh, there's so much to hate about this book. Because, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you you gore every ox. I mean, I just, before I started reading your book, I finished George Will's new book, The Conservative Sensibility. And there he sort of, he, he states this very classically conservative position that order is fragile and if we if we sort of question any of our institutions and any of our traditions, we're just going to descend into like this horrible Hobbesian chaos, right? Mm. And then you have on the other end uh, progressives, uh, some of whom seem to believe that we can just remake ourselves into absolutely anything; that there's no mm. natural limits on on what we can do, and that the past is nothing but a catalog of horrors. Mm. Right, and then uh, libertarians. What they 
they, they could find lots of reasons to hate this book too. So it's, uh, I mean, in terms of the partisan times that we live in thus far, what has been your, res- uh, the response from sort of hardcore team players of various stripes? Well, I have to say that to my knowledge, the book hasn't, hasn't irritated anyone on, <laughs> on, uh, on, on, on political grounds. And uh, partly I think it's because the book is an optimistic book that highlights the wonderful qualities of human beings. And I also think in a way that you kind of allude to, it sort of, it deftly, it deftly, um, cuts across political cleavages because usually the kind of emphasis on our fundamental evolved origin is seen as a uh, conservative viewpoint, but also in the conservative viewpoint tends to be a notion of our imperfectibility, this notion that we need institutions to restrain us because we are in a kind of Hobbesian world rather than a Rousseauian, and I'm clearly Rousseauian, um, because I think that humans in a state of nature are good, not bad. Um, But meanwhile, on the left, you have people that are very skeptical of the role of evolution and genetics in human social life um, and believe in the, as you said, the perfectibility, but uh, seem to ignore the fact that historical efforts to improve society, especially by fiat, have tended to be catastrophic. And as I argue at the end of the book, I think more lives have been lost through a belief in the sociological mutability of human society than a belief in the genetic immutability of human society. So I don't see a belief in or evidence for the claim that there is some kind of evolutionary origin to human society as, um, as problematic or threatening at all. In fact, because I'm focused on the genetic determinants or an evolutionary determinants of goodness, um, I can escape both of those poles if you see it. And furthermore, a lot of the time people have been focused on the ways in which genetic differences might explain differences across groups, but I'm not interested in that at all. I'm not interested in how genetic differences might explain differences across groups. I'm interested in the rather much more overwhelming genetic similarities and how those explain universals across groups. Yeah. So, in es- so in essence, what I show is, is that we humans universally evolved to make good societies. And so it's kind of hard to argue that, <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think. I mean, it's hard to argue factually, I think. I mean, I present a lot of evidence. And I also think philosophically, you know, what's your position? No, you know, we are, we are unavoidably awful. Uh, or, you know, that, that we are, you know, that we are, you know, that we are, we are so dissimilar place to place that we have nothing in common. You know, I think those are, I think those are scientifically unsound and philosophically dangerous positions. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're, I think you're a little bit older than I am. I'm almost turning 45 next week, but when I was in, when I was in undergrad, uh, what was really popular at the time was, was postmodernism and like in the nineties and stuff like that. And I remember I I had lots of, yeah. has that lost popularity? I wasn't aware that that was lost, losing popularity. Uh, well, it's um, it, it's still around with, with, but it's given way more to to kind of identity politics and, and other mm-hmm. stuff. That is, uh, but this was you know, and there are definitely overlaps between those two things. But I remember what I was what I was taught. I had a lot of teachers who said that basically each culture is is almost like a like a piece of software. 
and that um, you know you sort of format a bunch of people with that software, and those softwares are incompatible with each other, and there's just there's no way to understand you know bit, between mm-hmm. cultures. It's it's always gonna like it's like trying to run a program from one mm-hmm. on another, and then of course that sort of yeah that definitely devolved into the kind of uh, identity politics where each group they they live in these kind of epistemic bubbles mm-hmm. and it's sort of it ends up it ends up sooner or later with a kind of in in many kind of self-help circles with almost like it, it gets the the end gets smaller and smaller and smaller and pretty soon it's only people uh, from working class homes who are bisexual and tried ecstasy in 2012 like whatever like it gets more and yes. more narrow can understand each other uh, and yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 not my vision of us as human beings. Uh, as I said, neither from a from a sociological or evolutionarily evolutionary biological point of view, nor from a philosophical point of view. And I think there's much more that unites us than divides us. We have evolved to to manifest these good qualities, and I think that uh, highlighting those qualities uh, can give us a way to understand each other better. I mean, for example. You know, anyone who's traveled, who's had the experience of going to other parts of the world, has had the experience of noticing when they arrive that the the people in this country are different. You know, they dress differently. They eat different foods. They speak a different language. They worship a different god. They, they, um, you know, they have all these distinctive qualities that, you know, that are different. But, but, but once you spend time in that country, very quickly, typically, you also begin to realize that people are just like us, you know, they love their families. They tell jokes. They form groups. They uh, they um, work together to achieve objectives. They teach each other things. They have all these wonderful, humane, human qualities, which also become apparent to an, an observer. I mean, I think uh, I think Mark Twain had a wonderful quote, which I have on my desk, which is, "Travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness," and many. <laughs> And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one's little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. I yeah. mean, that's just that's so beautiful. true. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. No, it's it's very, very true. I mean, having that that kind of... I, I always tell my students that the the first experience that most human beings have with with a philosophical perspective is when you sleep over at, at a friend's house for the first time when you're a little yes. kid. Cause that's when you realize that other kids have different uh, stuff in their fridge and they have a different bedtime and they have a different way of interacting with their parents and what's okay and not okay. Maybe these people answer the phone during dinner, your parents yes. don't. And, and so you realize as soon as you have a point of comparison, it gives you you can start to form judgments, right? Before that, you just think that the way things happen in your household is the way they happen uh, absolutely everywhere, right? And then, but when you have that that opening to realize that uh, that it's different, then that's that's sort of your opening for a for perspective. But but there's a couple of things in your book. This idea that I was sort of wrestling with, and I've, I've been wrestling with this for a long time, is to what extent are we malleable as in, as human beings, and to what extent are we malleable as men, as women, as and you know what is fixed and what isn't, right? And I, it seems to me, and you can tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that the the argument that I see in Blueprint is that human beings are sort of like social 
Swiss Army knives that we have all of these various little, you know, apps, these various little things that can be come into use if if need be, and that we're kind of generalists with specializations, if that makes sense. So we have so maybe maybe men on average are going to be better at hunting and fighting on average, but still uh, women are are going to have to be able to fight and hunt too. And so maybe women on average might be better at taking care, care of children, but the men need to know how to do that too and so on and so forth. Is that sort of a... Well, I, I, don't, I don't really talk about gender differences in the book very much at all. I mean, I do talk about the evolution of monogamy yeah. and, uh, and pair bonding and sort of different strategies that male and female members of a species might adopt to reproduction and so forth. But the book isn't so much about, again, differences between categories or types or groups of people. It's, again, much more about what unites us. Yeah, because that's but the parts of the passages that I've that I've um, had students would, read from, like the fifth chapter especially, uh, that a lot of them are really into the idea of polyamory. That's like very popular <laughs> at the time. And so they were not happy when you were saying that polyamory is... Uh, you know, not impossible, but you're you're really sort of swimming upstream if you want to do that. Yeah, I don't know if they, they probably they probably enjoyed the uh, the uh, material about the na people. Oh yes, know. yes, yeah, but, but <laughs> everybody before, loves that. Yeah, yes, but before but before we uh, get to that, I just want to go back to sort of before you sort of highlighted gender differences. You were speaking about you know how much how much pressure might be required to modify some kind of fundamental attributes of our species. And, and the, arg- the analogy I would give is, is that, of course, some things you can change. You know, for example, we might, you might, we might be, uh, our bodies might be designed in general to have two kidneys uh, that, that uh, work in a particular way. But I, if I expose you prenatally to a particular toxin, you might be born with no kidneys or with one kidney. But, but, or, or for example, if I starve you when you're a child, you might have stunted growth. You might not be as tall as you otherwise would have been. But those, those, those very powerful exogenous constraints on the formation of your body no more tell us, do not tell us about, about what the ordinary, typical, natural development of your body is. And so I would argue analogously with many attributes of our behaviors, not just our bodies, and even, as I argue in the book, our societies. There are certain features of our society that are very natural. Love of your partner is one of them. That is seen everywhere in all human societies, with the possible exception of the na that I discuss. But the na have to apply a very powerful cultural force and a very elaborate set of rules in order to stop that. Um, Similarly, you know, play in children is very natural. Children play. It seems, so far as we know, in every society around the world, with a possible exception of the Bening people who, you know, try to prevent children from playing and so forth and so on. So, for example, friendship. Friendship is seen in every society. Uh, People have friends, again, with a couple of exceptions. Certain types of, of societies and certain types of organizations and communities try to suppress friendship between individuals. Usually when these are very collectivist societies where particular friendships between pairs of people are seen as a threat to the whole, are seen as a threat to the cohesion of the group as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. It's like like a a guy that uh, a friend of mine that I had on the podcast a few weeks ago, 
Alexander Boldizar, uh, the novelist, he grew up in communist Czechoslovakia, and he talked about how the the communist regime there, they very, very, very deliberately tried to undermine ties between yes. family members and yes. and friends by actively encouraging people to snitch on their parents yes. if they if they said something bad about the government at the dinner yes. table or if your friend and then when people would like if a kid would like snitch on their parents they would have statues of that kid all over the communist all over the soviet union yes. all over the the communist world as like look this is a a moral exemplar somebody yes. who chooses the you know the state so yeah it's yes. exactly what you're talking about like trying yes. to divide those things. Yes, exactly. So, so I talk, I use the, I did not use the Czech example, but I use the example of the Stasi in East Germany, yeah. which is able to foment so much distrust among people that friendship becomes very difficult in such a society, although it also becomes more necessary. In any case, it doesn't survive. Uh, you know, you can suppress these kinds of innate human capacities. Now we're talking about our social capacities, not our body morphology, for example. You can suppress it for a while, but only for a while. Eventually these things, you know, recrudesce. They kind of erupt and you can't keep friendship down. It's just a part of our nature. Um, I mean, love is another example. Uh, many communitarian movements, many communes in in, the, in American history, especially in the 19th century, had to struggle with a problem, and kibbutzes in Israel and other examples had to struggle with the problem of love and sex, because intimate relations in a family, uh, whether between spouses or between parents and children, were a threat to the fealty to the state. You no longer felt a loyalty to the state. And they often adopted very very opposite approaches, which actually were directed at the same goal. So at one extreme, for instance, you had, you know, the shakers who say no sex at all. And at other extreme, you have communes that uh, encourage polyamory. Everyone can have sex with everyone. Yeah. But actually, both of those things are directed at the same goal, which is diluting or suppressing a particularistic set of connections between individuals. So the same thing happens with friendship. You know, in communist countries, you're supposed to call everyone a friend or comrade, Yeah. right? You're not supposed to have particular friends or particular comrades. Everyone is a comrade. Everyone is a friend. Uh, or you're supposed to have, you know, be completely isolated and have none. And in fact, I also in the book talk about some, some science fiction stories where, where science fiction authors imagine a world without friends, for instance. But the point is, these are very, this is the friendship, for instance, and, and, and love and cooperation. And we haven't talked yet about teaching. All of these are fundamental human qualities that are seen universally and that we evolved to manifest and that vindicate our confidence in the goodness of society, dis, despite the manifest horrors that we can all see and that have also always been present. Yeah. I, I love that one part in the book where you're, you're quoting um, Obama, when he went to go speak, there was a, a shooting. And yes. that, uh, the one kid, what he threw himself in front of. Can you sort of it's, tell the story? The... Well, I don't remember the precise details, but it was a, a, a group of friends. Uh, and I think his name was Xavion Brown. He, um, I'm not 100% sure about the pronunciation or about the name, but, but he threw himself. There was sort of random gun violence. Someone was, uh, you know, sort of engaged in just a, a drive-by shooting, and he threw himself in front of his friends and died. And Obama comes to eulogize him and, of course, uh, quotes the, the Bible, you know, where um, 
you know, there's no greater, uh, I forgot Love exactly. Love than this than want to yes. lay down your life yeah. for your friend. Your friend, yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, I think philosophers, uh, religions have been wrestling with these ideas for a long time as well. I mean, and, you know, if an alien came down and looked at our society, I'm quite confident that, that they would notice the, our capacity for friendship. I, I should mention that our capacity for friendship is very unusual in the animal kingdom. Uh, friends are, are long-term non-reproductive unions with other members of our species. So, so we, many animals have sex with each other. Of course, we do too. Yeah. But we also befriend each other, which is very rare in the animal kingdom and is seen only in certain types of animals. Uh, for example, us, certain other primates, whales, and, uh, and certain, certain cetacean species. And, um, and this is different than the kinds of ties that exist, for example, in packs of dogs, which often tend to be related, or uh, than in the eusocial insects. Uh, you know, the, for example, the termites and ants and bees, which are, of course, clones. They're genetically identical. So yeah. uh, anyway. Yeah, so no, really, that's it. That's, so that maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about teaching, because that's also one which, you know, for very selfish reasons, I loved. <laughs> but uh-huh. you're saying one of the fundamental things about, um, because I think this this is such an interesting point, which I have not encountered i'm you know i imagine you're probably not the first one to point this out but it's the first time i've encountered it and it's just what you're saying makes so much sense when you look at things like wikipedia and youtube and you have these people and just you know in my regular life i i I noticed that there does seem to be this fundamental drive that if people have a really good cookie recipe or if they they're good at like fixing you know, floors or fixing. People just love to give you advice and just yes. like, tell you, you know, I mean, you can look at it like in a shitty way, but like, you yes. know, but I mean, I even see it just if I'm like doing, you know, gardening in the front of like my house yes. and I'm kind of struggling with something, uh, one of my neighbors will notice who's good at gardening and they'll just come over right. and just spend, it's like this natural human yes. desire Yes. Um, which some people, I guess, it can come off as being sort of bossy or a know-it-all, but uh-huh. but I think you're much more right on that it's actually just this fundamental um, drive we have to share yes. our skills and knowledge. Yes, yes, it's amazing. It's a kind of altruism, and our capacity for teaching and learning from each other is a fundamental origin of our of our wealth. It, it allows us to transmit information across time and space uh, such that when you are, let me just think about it. When you are born today, you're born into a world in which calculus has already been invented and animals have already been domesticated and, uh, and roads have been built. And all of this stuff is just yours because you happen to be born now. All these prior generations of people have explored and invented things and taught it to other people. And now you get it. You get this extraordinary gift across time or a gift across space when you teach others things like the examples you gave. It's, it's miraculous, actually. And, and it's, again, very unusual in the animal kingdom because, you know, many animals, most animals, I would say, learn. You know, little fish can learn that if it swims up to the light, it'll find food there to eat. Some animals learn socially, that is to say they learn from each other. So, for example, I watch you put your hand in the fire and you, you burn your hand, I'm sorry, you put your hand in the fire and you, 
you burn your hand and, uh, and now you've learned something at paid a price, you burned your hand, but I could watch you and now I can learn something, but I pay none of the price. I learn almost as much as you did, but I don't burn my hand. I pay none of the price. And that type of social learning is extremely efficient. It's amazing actually that I can yeah. get almost as much. And, but furthermore, or, you know, you eat the red berries and you die and I learn, oh, don't eat those red berries and I don't die. So, you know, yeah. that's, a, that's pretty good, actually. It's a good deal if you think about it. So, 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 but we don't just do that. We teach each other things. We teach each other how to build fires or how to avoid red berries. We pass it along. And, and that is really rare in the animal kingdom and extremely valuable. Um, and is, as I said, lies at the root of our capacity for culture, which in turn is 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 miraculous like the fact that we we can create these we can create culture we can create a set of ideas and practices and artifacts that that we can transmit across time and space so so yes teaching is also a wonderful quality that we have that we evolved to have and that is part of what i call the social suite which is these eight interrelated traits that are seen universally that are evolutionarily uh, pre-wired and that um, relate to how we interact with each other. And what are those eight traits? Just for the for the cheap seats, what, what are uh, yeah, those so, eight traits? So, so identity, the capacity to be an individual, which is paradoxically crucial to the capacity to interact socially. Uh, love, friendship, social networks. The fact that we assemble these ourselves into networks with particular mathematical properties. Cooperation, um, in-group bias, which is the sort of the tendency to prefer one's own group to other groups, which is sort of depressing. Uh, mild, <laughs> mild, mild hierarchy. Uh, so we're neither too hierarchical nor too egalitarian and, uh, and teaching and social teaching. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely amazing. So, but the teaching thing, you also point out that, uh, that animals have this as well, that it's, it's something, they don't have it, obviously, to the extent that we have it, but you talk about that wonderful story with your dog, your miniature Datsun, like, yes. watching another dog jump up on well, the was, table. Yeah, that was social learning. That wasn't teaching. I don't believe that the first, I don't believe the beagle <laughs> It didn't intend to, to teach. It did not intend to teach Rudy, <laughs> that's right, <laughs> did not intend to teach Rudy how to eat food off our hill, but Rudy had lived with us for like seven years, and had never shown much interest in things that were high up and out of sight. And then we had this friend visiting who had a beagle, and somehow the beagle knew that if it jumped up onto a chair and then from there up onto the table, it could help itself to whatever was on the table. And so the beagle did that, and Rudy, we saw Rudy. He, like, watched this beagle and said, hey, that looks like a good idea, and then did the <laughs> same thing. And then, you know, and since then, we haven't been able to leave food on our table uh, because, you know, or we have to push the chairs underneath. Yeah, so this social cracks me up. A, yeah, well, Rudy is quite a riot. <laughs> well, the I mean, in terms of learning, you have a couple of sort of speculative bits near the end of the book where you talk about how we could actually start learning from artificial intelligence, and we already, in some small ways, have. You talk about the uh, the great Go player who played. Uh -huh. uh, was it Alpha? No, yeah, so uh, yeah, so uh, that's right. So Lisa Dahl, the world's best uh, player of Go, who played against uh, Google DeepMind's AlphaGo program, and it was an extraordinary thing. Uh, you know what? Um, so so they they developed this neural network based 
software that could play Go, and Go is a much more difficult game than uh, the than chess. chess. Yeah, and uh, they they the game they they actually eventually they programmed it so they didn't even tell it the rules at all. Initially, their initial programs told the software the rules, but that's irrelevant. The um the the computer started playing against human players and sort of with machine learning techniques started to learn how to play the game. And then, uh, then they started having it play against better and better humans, eventually the European champion. And then the computer could start playing against itself, millions and millions of games and learn, uh, teach itself as it were. Yeah. And finally, finally the game, uh, was the, the match was set with the world's champion, a Korean man by the name of Lisa doll. And go is like, you know, go players in many parts of Asia are like, you know, like soccer players in Europe or, you know, baseball players in the United States. I mean, they're Lisa Dahl like markets noodles, you know, in wow. Korea. You they're know, they're rock stars over there. Yeah, they're rock stars. And he's an amazing player. And uh, and he was a little cocky. I thought too cocky when he came in to play. And he, he played against the first, played the first match and he, he lost. And, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the machine was making some very weird moves that the commentators and later Lee himself would describe as very counterintuitive beautiful moves you know with a long-term vision of what where where to put the little pieces and uh and then lee the game was a three out of five match and then then lee lost the second and 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 the third games and um and so he had lost the match but he insisted on playing and he comes back for the fourth game and uh and he wins and (laughs) and uh and uh i was i was in tears I was in tears. I was so proud. Go team speech. human. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 Go us. Yeah. Go us. You know, screw that machine. Yeah. You know? Go us. <laughs> and, uh, and I was so proud of us humans. And I was, and Lisa Dahl later said it was one of the most, you know, important games of his life. But, but the point of the story is not any of the things I'm telling you now. And then he lost the fifth match. The point was after Lee had played with this machine, and then he returned to playing other humans. His style of play had changed. Lee had learned something from playing with the machine. And, um, and this interests me very much, this example idea of how when we create what I call hybrid systems of humans and machines, for example, autonomous vehicles on a road with, with us, you know, driving our own cars and there are some robotic cars or bots online that on Twitter, for example, that interact with us, with humans. When we create these hybrid systems of humans and forms of artificial intelligence, what I'm interested in is not how the artificial intelligence interacts with individuals among us. No, what I'm interested in is how the artificial intelligence changes how we interact with each other. Yeah. So how how does it, you know, how does it how does it, you know, maybe modify the kind of social interactions, hence the kind of societies that we make? I'll give you one other trivial example of this. You know, imagine that you have a a robotic assistant, like an Alexa, for example. And uh, the makers of that device, uh, you know, don't program the device to be very obedient. You know, they don't require you to be very polite to the device. You know, they don't say, excuse me, you know, I'm sorry to interrupt you. You Please, Alexa, would you uh, tell me the weather, you know, tomorrow? You can just say, weather tomorrow. And the machine will respond because it's supposed to do that and help you. And as I said, be obedient and so forth and not require a lot of social niceties. So now imagine little children using this machine who, you know, are rude to the machine. You know, the, pro- the people who sell the machine have no reason to not do that. And your, the child using the machine has no reason to be polite. But now those children learn to be rude 
and they go to the playground and they're rude to other children. And so adding this machine to our, our society is changing how we interact with each other. And that is much more concerning to me. And I think is something we need to think about seriously. Yeah. Well, I guess you would have to make sure that they, uh, the artificial intelligence were, that they were programmed with, with the social suite, that they were programmed with, um, yes. the, the proper kind of human, you know, I, I think yeah. about it, the, you know, with, for me, the most charming thing about the Iron Man movies was, you know, Tony Stark creating this artificial intelligence. I can't remember what uh, is it. What's his name again? His. It, it's You're asking me about is that Marvel or DC? People are going to laugh. It's uh, Marvel. <laughs> it's like it's. Uh, but Tony Stark is this genius, and he's an inventor, and he creates this AI that he's constantly talking to, and uh-huh. in his shop, and he's programmed this AI to be not only incredibly brilliant, but to have uh, a sense of irony and a uh-huh. sense of humor. And, and sort of he works through technical problems by talking to this artifact in the same way that the Go player, you know, uh-huh. learns new kind of in, in conversation. Uh-huh. So it's, it's a whole new, um, a whole new way of thinking about our interaction with machines. So, you know, we grew up with uh, machines usually kind of, to some extent, diminishing our capacities, our innate capacities. Like, for instance, when I was a kid, you probably had the same thing, but when I was a a kid, I had, like a teenager, I had probably a hundred phone numbers, maybe 200 phone numbers memorized in my head. Uh, Now I I can... you didn't? I did not have that many. No, I. Oh, I, I, I knew I all had, my friends, all my family members. I had, oh. I had all these phone numbers like in my head because yes. that's what you had to do, and I yes. used the phone often, right? But yes. then, of course, you got digital phones where you can save the numbers on the phone, and yes. then pretty soon you don't have to. Now, I, I couldn't even tell you what my wife yes. and my two sons. I couldn't even tell you what they're phone numbers are it's it's in my phone i just like you know and so uh, there's a lot of technology that kind of diminishes our innate capabilities but this the ai it seems like it could actually reverse that process in certain instances where it could actually heighten our awareness like imagine if you know what yuval noah harari talks about in in homo deus like if you could have an ai that was in your phone that was almost like your your own therapist and you could yes. you could talk to this AI, and this thing is like hooked up to getting all sorts of biometric data from everything from your blood pressure to your how you're sleeping to you know how you're all these different things to these stress hormones and your and your breath. Yes, and so you might say, you know, I'm feeling really angry at my husband, or uh, or I'm feeling really angry right now, you know, what do you, th- what should I do about this? And, you know, you're, this, this AI might say, well, you know, you haven't slept well in four nights. You slept four hours on this night. You've ha- you haven't been eating particularly well. Uh, you've had this stressful thing. So perhaps you're overreacting a little bit to the situation. Maybe you want to <laughs> just like take a breather and not take this too seriously. You know, conversely, the same little app therapist in your phone might say uh well actually this is a pattern he's been doing this like uh he did it on this day this day this day this day this day and you know he's he's being kind of unreliable and you should probably be more assertive and you know, tell him to get his shit together like like mm-hmm. that if you had something like that which is not inconceivable at all 
that would have the effect of actually making humans more uh, self-aware. Like not less. Well, I don't. I don't know. Uh, yes and no. So it might. It, it it might initially have that effect, but it might eventually lead to a laxity in internal control. So the example I like to give that's very analogous is uh, is you know Google Glass. Uh, well, let me back up. Let me just um, let me uh, let me back up and talk about an example in the book, which is the the example of uh, of the ability to digest uh, milk which is one of our best examples of gene culture coevolution. So, um, so most there's a, a sugar in milk called lactose, and we have an enzyme in our body called lactase that digests, uh, that digests milk. And most people on the planet today, adults, can digest milk. Now, not everyone. Some are lactose intolerant uh, they, because they don't have lactase anymore in their bodies and uh, can't digest lactose as easily. So, so well, for, let's back up a moment and look at this. Uh, all humans need to digest lactose when they're infants, yeah. but when they're adults, in our ancestral condition hundreds of thousands of years ago, there was no reason for adults to be able to digest lactose because there was no milk in their environment. In other words, you were weaned and you never drank milk again for the rest of your life there were, because there were no animals that produced milk that you could you could eat or access. There was no milk in your environment. But between three and 9,000 years ago, human beings repeatedly domesticated milk-producing animals, cattle and sheep and goats and camels and so forth. And so now all of a sudden, there was a supply of milk in the environment. So those humans among us who were able to digest lactose as a, into adults suddenly require, uh, acquired a fitness advantage. And uh, that is to say they had an extra source of food that wasn't available to anyone else and an extra source of hydration in times when water was scarce or spoiled. So the point is, is that we have been able, scientists have been able to show that there have been repeated emergence of mutations in our species to cope, to, 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 to create lactase persistence into adulthood to make it possible for adults to digest lactose. And what's amazing about this is that here we have an example of human beings modifying their environment, a cultural change, this invention of domesticating animals, leading to a genetic change, changing the trajectory of our, of our evolution, resulting in different sorts of humans being alive today than would have been alive had we not domesticated these animals. So culture can change our genes. This is a very important idea. But now let me come back to the Google Glass example. We, if we invent this technology that uh, that has, you know, facial recognition and that can uh, can uh, can you know see you know, see other uh, see other people and uh, and and recognize who they are and then like bring up their Wikipedia pages <laughs> and, fr and 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 furthermore know whether they were friends to us or strangers to us or enemies to us and then talk in our ear and say, you know. This is John. You know, he's a nice guy. He has a cool podcast. He likes you. Well, the the dissemination of such a device over time might result in human beings who no longer need that capacity in their minds. You yeah. would no longer need to rely on having that internally. And as a result, we might become less and less socially adept as time goes by. I'm talking now over thousands of years of evolution because, again, of this cultural innovation of Google Glass, let's say similar to the cultural innovation of, of, uh, of uh, you know, domesticating animals. So, so my point in response to your story is, is that it's not necessarily the case that, that, that this little device would heighten 
you know, it might on the short run heighten our conscious concern about these things, but over the long run, it might actually lead to the opposite effect. Yeah. Well, I think already that that is happening. And this is actually the sort of the what I wanted to ask you about as well is you mentioned you don't you don't linger too long on it, but that the modern world in certain ways is is undermining uh, friendship and family ties because increasingly uh, you can, for instance, if you're having a, a rough time, you can rather than leaning on family and friends and talking to them, you can instead um, sort of pay a therapist for that, or if you're yes. you know and so on and so forth, and then. Uh, you know, a lot of people recently, uh, including Jonathan Haidt and others, have, have talked about how uh, the increasing accessibility of, of pornography and of other things like that. Yes. Increasingly, we can get a lot of our basic human needs, whether it's the need to to talk to somebody because we're grieving about the death of a parent or the need to uh, for to to get off or to, you know, to have, mm -hmm. we can pay people to do this stuff. And do you think that could be eroding the social suite? Yes, a little bit. Some of these things could be threatened. I mean, in fact, we're doing a large-scale field experiment, not in human evolution, but we are looking a little bit at how the introduction of formal institutions into social groups might or might not modify the social connections in the group. So, for example, think about police. You know, in our society, in the olden days, if you wanted to protect yourself against injustice or enforce rules, you needed a large group, let's say your tribe, that you could turn to for help in, in times of when you were threatened. But now we, you know, we have a police and judges and courts and other institutions that take the place of you relying on your friends. If someone comes and robs you, you don't go and get a bunch of your friends and make a posse and go get that person. You go to the cops and, you know, professionals take care of it. Or similarly, in many developing world villages, people rely on each other for health, for health care. You know, if, if social ties are very important, you know, when I'm sick, you take care of me. When you're sick, then I take care of you. And you have a network of connections, one of the purpose of which, in part, is to help you when you're down. Well, it, this may suggest that an unintended consequence of going into a village like that and adding a health clinic providing an institution that is now taking care of people when they're sick, which is no doubt a good thing, may actually weaken social relationships unexpectedly in the village. Yeah. Because now people, so this may be an unexpected downside to the provision of formal institutions. And of course, since we invented cities and developed political lives, you know, in the last 8,000 years or so, I think it's quite possible, and that I do speculate about this in the book a little bit, that these innovations have actually changed the kind of humans that we are, genetically speaking. That is to say, what kind of capacities and traits, on average, you know, we have. So, so absolutely, uh, all kinds of innovations have done and will continue to do uh, have of changes, you know, modify our evolutionary trajectory. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I saw this just, you know, growing up because like, I, I grew up in a. a working class neighborhood sort of poor working class neighborhood and my mom was on welfare until uh, I was 14 and we didn't have we lived in a kind of public housing and the it was basically most of the people in the building were single moms uh, mm -hmm. on public assistance and the moms like they you know my mom had three kids and they didn't have enough money for babysitters 
They couldn't afford mm-hmm. babysitters, and they didn't have daycare was was pretty expensive, and they couldn't afford it. And so, if you had to take one kid to like a dentist appointment, or you had to do something like that, or you had a, some sort of emergency, you had to ask uh, the mothers. One of them would have to ask another one in the building that that we lived in. Uh, hey, can you watch my kids tonight? I've got to go mm-hmm. to you know a doctor's appointment, or mm-hmm. I've got to take this one to that, and so. There was this constant trading of favors, which, yes. which had which had the effect of kind of binding all of the moms yes. together. Like you know, they're still yes. friends to this day, most of them, right? Yes. Whereas, and then in terms of the kids, because we were all kind of there's like tons of kids in this building, we were all friends and we hung out in these big packs and we're, there's always people to play with and stuff to do, and we would play like hockey yes. and all this different stuff. Uh, and everything was, there was a kind of a real unity in that respect. Whereas I see now I teach in a, uh, a very wealthy suburb of Montreal and they, a lot of the people that live in big houses and stuff like that. And what I hear from them, especially the ones that are in the really wealthy, uh, areas there that they're like, it's so completely lonely because yes. you know, you, uh, people don't, they have home theaters in their basements, so they don't go to the theater they have a pool in their backyard, so they don't go to the public pool and hang out and meet lots of people there. Yes. You have a jungle gym in your backyard, so you don't go to the public park and meet your yes. neighbors. And everybody can afford, you know, nannies or babysitters, so nobody's trading favors. And so it has yes. this this weird effect of, of making people very lonely and isolated and not really knowing their neighbors, right? And I a couple of, you know, there's this one... Uh, it's so one woman from our church who I, my wife and I, and our kids, we live in like downtown Montreal, but there's uh, this one woman from our church and she lived in this wealthy suburb right next to where I teach. And they lived there for just a few years and then she moved, she insisted that you know, her family move away from there. But she said it was the loneliest time she's ever had in her life. Yes. And uh, so there is this, Well, what do well, you say that, to that, that? Well, I mean, I think that anecdote and story and argument that you've just provided also illustrates, uh, it provides an explanation for another phenomenon that's often misunderstood by politicians and, um, and social critics, which is, you know, this argument that, uh, you know, if, 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 if someone loses their job, a poor person loses their job, why don't they just, you know, move to another city and get a job there, you know, and, and in general, in the United States and North America, we have fairly efficient flow of capital and labor and, and there is relocation and people do migrate and they do change the neighborhoods and homes and so forth. However, this, this misunderstands the difference between, let's say a middle-class or rich person and a working class person, a working class person has a whole network of people that provide services for the, to them just like the babysitting story you told, or they know a guy who can help them with their car on the cheap, or um, they live in a neighborhood where they're not, even though they're poor, they're not likely to be robbed because everyone knows who they are and so forth and so on. Whereas if you're a rich person, you, you buy those services, you know, on the market, they're commodified. And so you can buy them somewhere else. You could just go from, move from Chicago to New York and, and just buy, replace all the services you previously had. But if you're a poor person, you can't yeah. move from Chicago to New York because you can't replace all those services. You can't, you can't suddenly have a group of friends who are going to change babysitting services where you there. You don't have those people in New York. They're in Chicago. Yeah. So that's a kind of way in which you get tied down as well. So, 
So it's, it, you know, this, this uh, perspective that you illustrate also speaks to why, you know, when, a, when, a, when a, uh, people are so reluctant to move, you know, why don't people leave this town where the factory closed? Well, they don't leave the town when the factory closed because, <laughs> even if, because even if they could find work as a machinist in another town, that's great, but, but nothing else is there. You know, none of the other stuff that they would get yeah. from their social networks is available to them, which is crucial. You know, yeah. it's like... Anyway, so oh, I remember looking yeah. at the uh, the immigration flows into Canada and the United States uh, from like it was a project I was working on a number of years ago, but it, from like eighteen eighteen fifty to to nineteen twenty, and it, from a couple of different countries, and I was absolutely blown away by the number of people from especially Italy and Greece who went back. Like yes. a, a lot of them went back, a lot yes. of them, and this happens again, and again. This happens, uh, and, and this happens even in the 21st century, and it happens in places that would surprise you. Like there are Palestinians that move to Canada, Canada, the United States, live here for a while, do very, very well, and then move back. Well, some of them. Yeah. We have to draw the distinction between those that are moving back when they're elderly, moving back because they've made money, and those moving back because they don't like it. Uh, so there's a mix of those things. You know, my father, for example, immigrated uh, Greek, immigrated to the United States in the late 1950s, you know, raised his family here and so forth. And then in his 70s, he had divorced my mother and she died a long time ago when I was 25 and she was 47. Um, anyway, so but he eventually moved moves back to Greece in his 70s. Wow. Uh, and that's a very different kind of behavior uh, then, then, uh, then, then another behavior, which is you're like a poor Greek or poor Sicilian that arrives here in 1900. You you uh, spend a couple of years here, and you're either homesick or lonely, or you can't make it work, and you say screw it and you go back. Yeah, um, which yeah. I was happened. reading. Uh, I was reading. It was I think it was in National Geographic. It was uh, an article from years ago. It was about uh, the the Christian minority that lives in Jerusalem. The people that are yes. kind of indigenous to there. Yes, and I know uh, a woman. You know, know people from there. I yes, I know a Palestinian Christian woman whose family has lived there since the 1400s, and wow, uh, and you know, <laughs> can trace on on this particular plot of land, and it's you know quite a politically dicey predicament for her and her extended family. Yeah, yes. well, th I, maybe this was about maybe this was about her or, or relations of her because. It was the article was talking about how it, the political situation had gotten so dicey for a lot of them, and the the tensions and the violence and things like that. That they a, a bunch of them had moved, and there were some pockets of them in L.A. and a few other places. And but the most of them were eventually going back, and it said they were going back because they just found they really missed the kind of sense of community. And even though there was stress and stuff like that, they felt this that they really had like this uh, yeah, neighborhood and they knew everybody in their neighborhood and there was a sense of like we're yes. we're a team right which yes. this just i find this fascinating i mean because you, you say that yes. in, in the book that during the cold war there was a tendency for people to be more um, perhaps more civil and kind to each other because there was a a general enemy right yes that's right united against a common enemy and so i do think Part of the polarization we see in the United States today and, um, you know, some of the kind of loss of social cohesion relates to the fall of the Soviet Union, that 
that, um, you know, before then we had this common enemy. And so there was a kind of more solidarity among Americans, you know, whereas now, um, you know, I think that that's been lost. I, I do predict that with, when China becomes, as China becomes more ascendant, um, I think there will be a kind of shift in American mindset in this regard. So we'll, we'll see. Well, in uh, the John, meantime, we, are can, you, we can start. John, are you, yep. Are you going to be able to edit this uh, at all or no? Uh, no, we usually don't unless somebody okay. wants to remove something in particular. Uh, okay, why is this? Well, I'd like to interrupt now for just a moment and say we're going to have to wrap it up soon. So, oh, right, um, right, right, right. Okay. Well, so you can edit edit this out and then we can, <laughs> we'll edit that out. Okay. Well, right. uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for writing this book. Uh, it's uh, it's a fantastic book. I will be profiting from it for <laughs> years to come. And um, I, I hope you uh, live long and prosper. Yeah. Oh, my God. Don't get me started on science fiction illusions. I could talk to you for hours about that. Well, another uh, no, time. <laughs> another time. I've had a, a really good conversation. Thank you for your kind words about the book and for your interest. And, uh, and really, I had a great hour talking with you. Thank you so much, John. All right. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye.